chapter 9. John chapter 9. Got a long way to go this morning in a short amount of time, so I want to jump right in. John chapter 9. Pay close attention to this story. In any good story, as you know, there's usually a main character. I, I, I guess we'd have to say in this story the main character is Jesus, but also pay attention to the, to the story, um, the man in the story to whom everything happens. In this case, it's, it's the man born blind. Uh, in these verses, he undergoes a, a tremendous transformation. Pay attention to what happens to him. Pay attention to his testimony, his story, the way he tells it, and pay close attention to where he ends up. Let's read together, John chapter 9. Follow along in the Bible. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one with you, uh, this is good. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, say the words, I am the light of the world. That's the key verse. I am the light of the world. If you don't know Jesus, then you are in darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of this world. Verse 6, then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind, blind man's eyes. Thank you for that. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same man, I'm the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, pay attention, he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. This won't go well. Took the man born blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. What's happening now? First time he told this story, it was this long. Second time he tells a story, it's this long. Pay attention, it's awesome. When I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man who had been blind and could now see, so they called his parents. They called his parents. They asked him, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see now? His parents replied, we know this is our son and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. Thanks, Dad. 
Jesus' parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why he said he's old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind, now I see. What did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. That's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. He's a preacher now, isn't he awesome? Get this. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found them and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby, I mean, these guys never go away. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard Jesus and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you think you can see. Back to verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Years ago, I had a, a good friend who went to church with a, a, an amazing woman named Julie. She was blind. Julie would come to church. Uh, she was just all smiles. Uh, she had a beautiful German shepherd named Delta, which was her companion dog, her C&I dog. Uh, Julie was great, and, and we all loved her. Uh, one day after church, I was talking to Julie, and she was standing there with me. And I was focused on her, and she had Delta the dog. And uh, Anyway, there was a lady that came up behind Julie and wanted to talk to me. Her name was Vi. Uh, and so Vi came and stood behind Julie, and she stood there like this, really patient for a while. But Julie just kept talking. You know, Julie's blind, and I'm looking at Julie. But then I can see Vi, like, looking around Julie like this, wanting me to see her waiting. But she can wait. You know, I'm talking to Julie. So I was focused on Julie and talking. And, and so then Vi just got really kind of impatient. Julie continued to talk. She was telling me a story. And so Vi, well, Julie's blind, right? So, so Vi eventually steps out in front of Julie. Julie can't see Vi. And she starts going, would you, would you come on in the parking lot? Like, she's trying to talk to me. Now, Julie's talking. But this lady steps in front because she knows that the blind lady can't see her. And she starts just mouthing to me. Jesus continued to do this. It was the rudest thing I've ever seen in my life. So finally, I gave her a sign. It was this. 
it was so rude to stand there as if the blind person, you know, doesn't matter. And this is kind of what happens in, in, in verse 1 here. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come upon a man born blind. A man born blind. And apparently everybody knows this guy. He has been a, a, a fixture on the way to the temple for years and years and years. The neighbors know him. Everybody knows him. He's just that man in the community that everybody feels sorry for. He's a beggar and he's blind. So the disciples walk up and they see the blind man there and they just start talking about him like he's deaf too. You understand? Here's a man blind and the disciples walk up and, and, and they see this as an opportunity for a delightful conversation. Jesus, what do you think about this sort of situation? A man born blind. Now just stop. Can you imagine being that blind man? Laying there while people just discuss the issue of blindness and how people could be maybe born blind. And how would you explain that? Why would anybody be born blind? I mean, he's a man. He's a man. He may be blind, but he's not deaf. But the disciples don't see a man at all. They just see an issue to discuss. They see a, an intriguing conundrum that they could discuss here with Jesus. It's an opportunity to talk theology for them. But this is not an opportunity to talk theology. It's a man. Now, honestly, in, in, in the Christian community these days, we still do a lot of this. When we encounter people, real life people that Jesus died for and that Jesus loves, we often don't see people. We just see opportunities to have discussions. We don't necessarily see people trapped in sin or, or, or addicted or, or struggling. We just see people that, that we don't understand, and we therefore will just have a whole full-blown Bible study to discuss why they are the way they are. You know, we don't necessarily see homosexual people who are struggling, who need grace and love. We just want to discuss the issue of homosexuality in the abstract. Just understand from this passage, Jesus doesn't do people in the abstract. Jesus doesn't see people as issues to discuss. Jesus sees people as people. Notice the beginning of the passage. Jesus was walking along and he saw a man. Jesus sees a man. The disciples just see a question. And the question is, why? Why? Why was this man born Now, honestly, for all I just said about, about the disciples only seeing a question, that is the mother of all questions. That is the mother of all questions. Why? Why suffering? Why would this pitiful man be born blind? Now, in their world, in their minds, they simply rather understood that suffering, pain would always be connected to sin, that people would suffer, that they would have pain because of sin. For them, that was a straight line. So they're trying to draw a straight line from the fact of this man's pain to, to somehow the sin that would have brought it on. And, and they can't figure it out because the problem is he's born blind. He's born blind. And so the question becomes, is it his parents' sin? Are, are the sins of the, of the parents somehow being visited upon their son? And so he's born blind, born with this birth defect. Because of his parents' sin? Or was it his sin? Okay, now stop and let that sink in. He's born blind. 
How could it have been his sin? And honestly, the rabbis used to discuss this. They used to rattle around with whether or not a baby in the womb could sin. Now, what can a fetus do in his mother's womb? Can he send a naked selfie out or something on, on a phone? I mean, is there any possible way for a baby in his mother's belly to sin? But this is their question, why? They simply don't understand why. Why is this man suffering? What would bring on this kind of pain? The question is why? Now, honestly, I've asked this question a million times, and so have you. It, it is the mother of all questions, and you would think at this point it's the opportunity for Jesus to preach the mother of all sermons. I mean, I want to hear Jesus answer this question, why? Why is this man suffering? Because if he can tell me why this man is suffering, maybe he can help me understand why any of us suffer. Why is there pain? Why? Why? So that's the question. This whole passage begins with that question. Why suffering? Why pain? Why, Jesus? Why? Well, now I'm listening. I want to hear what Jesus says. I want Jesus to answer that question. Because I ask it, and you ask it. Why? Why? Why did your daddy leave? Why? Why do you have to live with such pain? Why? Why did your marriage end in divorce? Why? Why does God leave you single? Why doesn't God give you somebody to love you? Why? Why did your uncle abuse you and you were only a child? Why? Why did things in your last church go so badly? Why? Why was your child born the way your child was born? Why? This question of why is perhaps the most paralyzing and discouraging question we'll ever ask, primarily because it never seems to have an answer. It just never seems to have an answer. All of our why questions, just never seem to get an answer. So here's Jesus' opportunity to answer the question, why? And what does he do? He changes the question. He, he changes the, the question. So let me suggest a couple of things to you. First, when you aren't getting answers from God, maybe you need to ask a new question. Maybe you need to ask a new question. I don't know any other way to say it, and, and I wish I were smarter or had more wisdom to share with you all, but this is just all I know how to tell you. Um, an answer to the question of why just doesn't seem forthcoming. If God were going to answer it, I, I think he would have answered it. And my hunch is the only answer we get to the question of suffering is Jesus hanging on a cross. My, my hunch is that's the only answer that's forthcoming. And my conviction is it's the only answer we need. God doesn't answer the question of why suffering. Instead, he steps down into it. He takes our suffering upon himself and he does something with it. He redeems it. He saves us by his own suffering. 
So my hunch is Jesus on the cross is probably the answer, the only answer that would help. And so honestly for us in our lives, if we continue just to stop and, and, and live at that question why, I'm not sure we're going to get very far. And I, and I have this idea that you're going to be so frustrated because I'm not sure that you're going to get the answer that you desire. And I'm also not very sure at all that there's an answer that would help. I mean, if, if God just wrote it in the sky or came down and explained to you why your loved one died or why you have to suffer with this disease or why you're facing cancer for the second time, I have this feeling that if God even gave you the answer, it wouldn't help. But Because the, the, the answer to your question would be a logical sort of, of answer, but the question itself isn't logical. It's, it's emotional. It's spiritual. It comes from a place of pain, not just a place of curiosity. So maybe in, in, instead of focusing on the, the question of why, maybe you need a new question. The disciples say, Jesus, why? Why is this man suffering? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sins? And Jesus just says, no. 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 But so that God's power can be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes to work. I have this idea that, that, that in our lives as believers, what happens is not nearly as important as what happens next. So maybe instead of focusing on why, why did this happen? Why do I have to live with this kind of pain? Why does the universe have to permit this kind of suffering? Maybe rather than asking why, maybe instead you should just focus on what's next. Instead of focusing on why, why not just ask God What's next? What does this mean now? What are you going to do now? If my life is going to include this kind of pain, then God, what are you going to do with me? How are you going to work in this pain? What are you going to make of it? How will you redeem it? Because God is always going to redeem it. He may not erase it. He may not even take it away, but he will enter into it. He will share it with you, and on the other side, he's going to make something beautiful of it. This idea that what, what happens next is more important than what's already happened. And, and so Jesus says, while it's day, while there's light, we have to go to work. We have to do the work that God has for us. So Jesus just turns that around. It's not an answer to the why question. It has more to do with what God is going to do. And so for you and for me, let's just always try to focus on what God is going to do and what God wants to do in our lives and what God is going to do with us. And sometimes our life will take twists and turns, and we will suffer things for which we'll never, ever understand why. And I'm just reminding you not to get stuck there at the question why. Maybe just change the question to God, what's next? What is my relationship to you now? What is the way that you're going to be glorified in my life now? What do you have for me now? So Jesus, of all things, so that... So that God can receive glory in this man's life, Jesus reaches down and, and he literally spits into the dirt. And, and he makes mud and he takes the mud and smears it into this man's cornea. Now do you think that's going to help him see? Let's just put it this way. If it helped him see, whatever it was that made him blind, now he's got mud in his eye. You with me? 
So even if instantly he's healed, he still can't see because he's got his eyes caked with mud. Why did Jesus do it this way? And then Jesus says, go and go and wash in, in the pool. And so the man goes, and when he washes his eyes, he can see. He can see. It is a miracle. He can see. He can see everything and everybody except Jesus, who's gone. Now, that's odd. Because when he opens his eyes, all that he sees are all the people that he's known for his entire life. And now this man, who's always been a beggar, now he has an entire different purpose in life. From this moment on, he's a witness. I don't know what God is going to do in your pain and with your suffering, but I have something to do. It has something to do with your becoming a witness. God's glory in your life. He's going to do something peculiar, something particular, something unique in your life, and you're going to be a witness to it. And when it's over, you got a story to tell. He's a witness. And in the Gospel of John, the whole theme of being a witness is very important. And in John chapter 9, this man's example as a witness is part of what you're supposed to be noticing. He's a faithful witness. He's a good witness. But it's hard to be a witness. It's hard. It's hard first off because whenever God does something, when he visits you and you begin to understand who Jesus is, and Jesus starts to work in your life, all of the people around you who don't know Jesus will not understand what Jesus means to you. They will not understand what Jesus means to you until later. Understand? They won't get it. They won't understand it until later. When the light begins to shine for them. For a while, they simply will not understand the strangest story. They've known this guy. He is laid there by the temple. He's laid there day after day, week after week, year after year. Everybody knows that this boy has been blind his entire life. And all of a sudden, he shows up seeing. He can see. And you would think that that would be the, the gladdest, most amazing moment that the town has ever seen. But it's not. The real heartbreaking part of this story is that nobody, nobody celebrates with this guy. Not a single person says, Ray, you can see. That's awesome. You've always been blind. What do you think? How do I look? I mean, that, that's what I would say. How do I look, Ray? Do I look like what you think I would look like? I mean, it would be amazing. Ray, you can see. What's it like? How blue is the sky? How green is the grass? Ray, you can see. Nobody does that. Not even his mama. Nobody has any joy to celebrate with this man. Do you understand? When Christ moves in your life for a while, people will not understand what Christ means to you. Not at first. Maybe later. But this is where your witness begins. It begins with all of those people who are never going to understand. You still have a story to tell. So number two, you tell your story. You tell your story. This is all the blind man can do, but I love him. I love him because he's about like you and me. The first time he tells it, it's a great telling. The man they called Jesus made mud and he spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. That's the whole story. 
But the more they ask him, okay, tell us one more time. What happened to you? How can you see? That story gets shorter and shorter and shorter until finally he boils it down to what? I used to be blind, now I see. I once was blind, now I see. You can tell he's tired of telling his own story, but he tells it. He tells that story. He tells what he knows. Now, his parents won't do that, and that is why in this story they are the examples of bad witnesses. They refuse to tell what they know about Jesus, but the son, the man who used to be blind, he doesn't hold back. He tells his story. Now, he's not a Bible scholar. There are a lot of things he doesn't know. I love in verse 12, they say, well, where is Jesus now? He says, I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's the weird part. When I open my eyes, he's gone. I don't know. I've never even seen him, actually. I don't know. I, I love that ability to say, I, I just don't know. Because this is what keeps a lot of us from being good witnesses. We're, we're always concerned that somebody will ask us a question and we won't know. So, so here's the thing. Don't let what you don't know keep you from telling what you do know about Jesus. Understand? Don't let what you don't know keep you from telling what you do know about Jesus because you ought to at least know something. You understand? You know something. The change that Jesus brings into any person's life demands an explanation. It, it demands explanation. And so therefore you have a story to tell and you must tell it. Now you won't probably in the process of telling your story be able to answer all of the Bible questions. You'll never be able to tell anybody where Cain got his wife. Or whatever happened to the dinosaurs. You understand? You may not know, and you don't have to know. But you ought to be able to say, listen, all I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And it's because of Jesus. Jesus is the witness. And if you know Jesus, and if he's made that kind of change in your life, you've got to tell your story. So why? Why does Jesus do it this way? The way that Jesus heals him pretty much guarantees that even when he gets his eyes, he won't see Jesus, at least not at first. That seems, that seems strange. It's one of those God works in mischievous ways. Why? Why would it turn out that he wouldn't see Jesus of all the people that he would want to see? If you read through the Gospel of John, one of the big moments is at the end of the story when, when the disciple named Thomas happens to miss one of those first resurrection appearances of Jesus. Do you know that story? He, he misses church on Sunday night, and that's the night that Jesus shows up, and all of the disciples see him, and they touch him, and when it's over, what does Thomas say? I ain't believing it. Yeah, I will not believe it till I see it. I want to see him for myself. I want to touch those scars. I want to put my hand into his side. I, I will not believe until I see. So Jesus gives Thomas what he needs for faith. Jesus appears to Thomas later and says, here, touch, see. But then Jesus says something amazing. Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. But blessed are those who are going to believe and never see. So you see, in, in this story, Jesus does it this way. Because this is the way you and I come to know Jesus. We don't see him with our eyes. This man has to come to faith. He has to be a witness without really seeing the very Jesus that has changed his life some. 
He believes before he sees, and so do you and me. Notice what Jesus says. The end of the story, Jesus makes an amazing declaration. He comes to the man. He finds him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35, the man answered, who is he, sir? I, I want to believe. You've seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Yes, Lord, I believe, and he worships. A, a couple of things here. When Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? At that point, it's not a question like, do you believe that the Son of Man exists? It's not that. And you mustn't think of it that way. It's not belief just in the sense of do you believe in your head that the Son of Man exists? Or even now at this point, do you believe with your eyes? The question has more to do with believing with your life. You know what I'm saying? It's not just a head awareness that there is Jesus. It's not just uh, being able to say, yes, I believe, my, my grandparents believed, and I'm a believer. It, it's more than that. It's, it's, uh, it, it's making this, this Jesus the very center, the very focus. It's making Jesus the one that helps you understand everything else about your life. You believe with your life. And so the man says, yes, I, I, I believe. And then he I'm, I'm not any kind of a Greek scholar, but lately I've been really trying to uh, work through the New Testament and learn some things about Greek. And this word for worship here is one of my favorite Greek words. Proskuo. It, it comes from a word that has to do with dogs. Stay with me. All you cat people, especially stay with me. You need Jesus. Just kidding. Yeah, I love dogs. I love my dogs. This word for worship comes from the word that has to do with dogs, and it has to do with the way a dog licks his master's hand. Again, you got to love dogs, maybe. Uh, my dog, when, when, when I come home, I come up this long gravel lane, and, and my dog listens. I, I don't know what she does. She must all day long just sit and wait for us to come home. You know what I mean? She's a dog. She has nothing to do. She just must sit there and wait for us to come home because when my car comes up the lane, my dog hits it, and she runs with me. All the way up the lane, she just runs. It's the best part of coming home. My dog just runs all the way up the lane, and she gets all the way to the garage, and the minute my door opens, she is in my lap, and this is a big dog. She's in my lap, and she wants to lick me. Yeah. Casey's the very same way. I appreciate it so much. I, I love that kind of affection. No, she, she licks me. She licks me. She'll lick my hand. She'll lick my arm. If I go running and come home, uh, Aggie, my dog, will meet me on this particular rock on my driveway. She just sits on the rock. And when I get over there close to her, I usually just bend down and just let her lick me. She loves that salt. She loves that sweat. But this is the way my dog greets me. This is the way she shows her faithfulness and affection to me. She just licks me. And the amazing thing is this word for worship comes from that. It's that kind of picture of smallness and greatness. It's that kind of picture of the one who knows her master and really has nothing to do to show her love except other than to just offer herself. And the scripture says that the blind man sees Jesus now. All he can do is worship. 
Jesus has given him eyes. Jesus has given him life. What does he give back in return? He has nothing to give in return. Just his worship. He worships. And then Jesus says this. I entered this world to render judgment. To give sight to the blind. That's grace. To give sight to the blind. And to show those who think they can see that they are blind. Grace and judgment come at the same time with Jesus. One day uh, I was going door to door in Woodburn and I like to do it sometimes. I just want people in Woodburn to know that the church loves them. I don't want people to live in Woodburn and say nobody from that church has ever come to visit me. So I, I, I try to go. I was going door to door on a Saturday morning and I was up there on Morristuff Road. I went to one house, and then rather than jump in my car and move my car and go to the next house, I decided just to cut across the grass. And so I did. I was kind of cutting across the grass. And as I was doing it, I noticed my neighbors have a long driveway, and this car was coming up the driveway just as I was coming across the grass. And, and then I saw three people get out, and I recognized right away, man, those are Jehovah's Witnesses. And I realized immediately, this is going to be awkward. Because it's just amazing. You couldn't have planned it. We couldn't have choreographed it. They got out of their car. They're coming from this direction. I'm coming across the grass. And we landed at the door at exactly the same moment. The Baptist preacher, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They looked at me. I looked at them. We all knocked. Yeah. Oh, no, what's going to happen? I mean, I'm here, they're there. We're just looking at each other, knocking, knocking at the door. It was awkward. My neighbor comes to the door. I said, hi, my name is Tim Harris from Woodburn Baptist Church. <laughs> I gave him a chance, you know. And we're the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Actually, we all got thrown off the porch that day. It was just a, <laughs> not a good moment. We all got thrown off the porch. But here's the thing. In Christ, grace and judgment arrive together and knock. Are you with me? Grace and judgment arrive together and knock. You choose which one comes through the door. Now, it's difficult. You would think, well, grace. I would always choose grace. Nobody wants to be judged for their sins. Everybody wants forgiveness. Everybody wants light to see. And this is a point that Jesus makes. No, as a matter of fact, most people are offended by grace. Most people don't welcome grace when grace knocks at the door because grace, forgiveness, mercy, when these things come to you, first before it can save you, the, the grace has to reveal to you your sin. Before you can receive the forgiveness that God is offering by his grace through Christ, you have to come face to face with your sin. Before Jesus can give you eyes that see, you have to be willing to admit the very, very painful fact that you are blind. Before Jesus can take all the pieces of your life and put them back together, you've got to be ready to admit that you're broken. And so many, many people, when grace knocks at their door, they do not welcome grace. Some of you in this house and in the sound of my voice, 
Jesus, the message of Jesus has come to you, and it is a message of grace and judgment all at once. But you get to decide how this turns out. You decide how this turns out. At the end of the story for the Pharisees, they say, are you trying to say that we're blind? Jesus came to give sight to the eyes that are blind. But for those who think they can see, they got to be ready to admit their blindness. Jesus is here to give you everything that you need in this life and in the next. But you got to be willing to admit that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. He says that I am the light of the world. Understand? So why would you walk in darkness? Pray with me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would understand what it means to be offered grace. It means that I can have sight as long as I am able to recognize that I am blind. It means that I can be found as long as I am willing to admit that I am lost. Lord Jesus, I pray that as grace and judgment arrive at the door of our hearts this morning and knock at the same time, Lord, I pray that we will receive your grace because, Lord, we don't want to face your judgment. Pray today, Lord, for people who are trapped in questions of why, why, why. Lord, I pray that instead of being locked in the past, in the puzzle of the past, Lord, that they would learn to lean into the hope of the future. Lord, we don't know exactly why things have happened as they have, but Lord, we're ready to find out what you'll do now, what you'll do next. Help us to lean into that. In the meantime, Lord Jesus, help us to be a witness to what you've done and what we've seen. Lord, we can't answer all the questions, but Lord, we can tell our story. We can tell people what you've done for us. And what you've done for us is good. It is the visitation of grace, the transformation of mercy, Lord. You have opened blind eyes. You have brought lost children home. So, Lord, today I pray for the blind eyes and the lost children in this house. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would respond to the knock at the door. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would welcome you in, that you'd open their eyes, shine light in the darkness. Make all of us, Lord, believers and worshipers and witnesses. We pray these things to the glory of Christ.